0: Well, good morning, everyone. By now you know that I am Jordan um, and I serve on our ministry staff. We're a few weeks really toward the end of a series called The Essentials, where we're focusing on the big themes that summarize the core beliefs of Christians. So today we're drawing our attention to what the church believes about itself. We're kind of chasing our tails a little bit because we are the church, talking about what the church believes about the church. Are you tracking with me? So in the Christian faith, there is a difference between essential beliefs and the other things that we believe. In theological jargon, those other things are called adiaphora, which basically means they're up for debate. There are at least 33,000 Christian denominations on earth today. So you can imagine how many variances that there might be in those churches and how many churches those denominations comprise. Dividing lines can often get drawn around those variances, but disagreements don't always need to become divisions. And that's why we're focusing on what's really important. So we've begun most sermons in this series with kind of a Reformation era motto that goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So we're focusing on the essentials to remind ourselves which things necessarily unite us and in which things there can be liberty. And above all, to remind ourselves to be charitable in everything. I'd like to start by reading what two of our reformed confessions have to say about the church. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a question and answer faith formation instructional tool, has this to say in question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member." And then the Belgic Confession, which is a summary of Reformed beliefs, has a lot to say about the church. Here's an excerpt from Article 27. It's a little bit long, but there's super good stuff in here. We believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of true Christian believers awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit, This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from the fact that Christ is eternal king who cannot be without subjects. And this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small to human eyes, as though it were snuffed out. This holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain people, but it is spread and dispersed through the whole entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. The reformed confessions are derived from and informed by scripture, but let's turn now to hear directly from God's word about the church.
1: not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. A reading from 1 Corinthians. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And one, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, And each one of you is a part of it. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Thanks, Claire. Heather. So between the Reformed confessions and the whole of the the Bible, we really could be here for hours and hours and hours and none of us want to do that. So with all of these essential big rocks of the Christian faith, we're taking kind of a 10,000 foot view today and we're going to focus on Christ's two primary actions regarding the church. The first is that we, the church, are gathered up by and into Christ. And the second is that we are sent out by and with Christ. Jesus is the architect and the instigator of the church. He gathers us up into himself, and because of his gathering action, we take on certain features, often understood as the attributes of the church. There are four of these, unity, holiness, Catholicity, and apostolicity. These four attributes are eschatological, which means that they're true now, but will only be fully realized in eternity. And the first is unity. By unity, we don't primarily mean that we agree about everything. Our unity comes from being gathered by Christ into the same body. We are united with Christ and therefore with each other. And it's not because we chose each other, but it's because Christ chose us. Here's what Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck has to say about our unity. The church is not an association of individual persons who first became believers apart from the church and subsequently united themselves. The church is an organism in which the whole exists prior to the parts. Its unity precedes the plurality of local churches and rests in Christ her head who gathers and governs it and always remains with it, is most intimately connected with it and dwells in it by his Holy Spirit. So what he means is that the church is not a voluntary society of Christians who came together and decided to form an organization. God creates the church and calls people into it. When Jesus calls a person to faith in him, he automatically calls that person into his body. It's one in the same. We join the church the moment that we are united with Christ, and in belonging to Christ, we also belong to each other, whether we like it or not. A hand can't function if it's cut off from the rest of the body. This is what Paul is driving at in Romans 12. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, but you don't worship at a local church, are you still a Christian? Yes, of course. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, does God desire that you live out that identity as a member of his body in community with other Christians? Yes, of course. There are lots of reasons why individuals who profess faith in Christ don't attend a local church. Some have health issues or mobility issues and can't attend. Others don't get to choose their work hours. Um, Some just live geographically isolated and others have experienced really deep wounds at the hands of the church. And there are some who feel a tug to come home, but when they're at church, they experience confusion or isolation or disconnection. Friends, there is grace for all of these circumstances. Whether you participate in the life of a local church or not, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a member of the body of Christ. And your life with Christ, who is the head of the body, will only be fully realized when it's expressed in relationship with the feet and the lungs and the ears of the body. Friends, the local church is deficient without your presence in it. Because every Christian is a gift to the church and the church is deprived of your gifts without you. This is pretty countercultural, especially in the United States, where rugged individualism and self-determination are high values. But this is what it's part, what, this is what it means to be part of the church and gathered up by Christ. We're gathered from various contexts to stand as a contrast community, which brings me to the next attribute of the church: holiness. For the church to be holy means that it is distinct not because we are morally superior but because we freely admit that we are sinners. This is the first and necessary step in receiving justification by Christ through by grace through faith. We recognize that we are in trouble and we need a savior. Many of you remember John's recent illustration about justification, that it means that Jesus erases our negative performance reviews and then copies his perfect performance reviews onto our file, puts it right back in the filing cabinet. We're not holy because we try really hard or because we believe the right things against those who believe the wrong things. Justification means that Christ's holiness has become our holiness. The body of Christ is holy because the head is holy. It's not through our own efforts that the church is holy. It's only through Christ's holiness. But we are not just self-aware sinners, we're dissatisfied sinners. We're not content to remain in our sin patterns because we want to become more like Christ. We desire with all seriousness of purpose, as Bavinck says, to live according to the commands of God. Justification, in other words, does not give us permission to be boneheads. (laughs) This is what John touched on in his sermon about salvation. In this life, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us to shape us more into the character of Jesus to liberate us from the power of sin. Theologian Shirley Guthrie has this to say about the necessary effects of holiness. How can the church claim to be the holy community gathered in the name of Christ if instead of reflecting his work of reconciliation, it goes on reflecting the same social and personal hostilities of worldly people? The local church is called to be a contrast community to embody key distinctives in contrast with its surrounding culture. But it is also, like Jesus himself, grounded in a location that is particular, in a people that is particular, in a culture that is particular in history. We are not wiped blank and given this stamp of sameness the moment that we're joined to Jesus. The degree to which a local church varies from other local churches is not a weakness to be corrected, but a strength to be celebrated. For God in Christ has not made us uniform, but unified. In fact, Bavink says the Spirit does not undo, but rather maintains and confirms the diversity that exists among believers. Holiness does not mean that we stopped reflecting our contexts it means that we stop reflecting the social and personal hostilities, the sin patterns of our contexts. Our task is to differentiate the ways that the gospel has indigenous expression or looks like the best parts of a culture from the ways that the gospel makes us a stranger in our own land. The Church of Jesus abides in thousands of cultures in thousands of languages over thousands of years. All those people who may otherwise look, sound, and think nothing alike are all members of the same body, are all made holy in Christ, and are all called to let their lives reflect that holiness. And this leads us to the third attribute of the church, Catholicity. Real quick, we're not talking about capital C Catholic as in Roman Catholic Church. Little c Catholic means universal, as in not bound by time or space, and not many separate churches, but as John 10 says, one flock with one shepherd. In being universal, the church is both visible, Christians as you and I can best identify them, and invisible. The invisible church includes all who have been saved through faith in Christ up until now, and all who will be saved after now. We're talking about that great cloud of witnesses made up of all those in Christ who have gone before us and those who have yet to be born. And only God knows who exactly is part of this cloud because only God knows our hearts. Hearts, by the way, that are pure before God because God has declared us righteous, not through our own efforts. I hope that's really clear. And it will not be until the end of the age, the consummation of the kingdom of God, that the visible church and the invisible church finally become the same thing. John's gonna talk more about that next week. So how can we recognize the visible church? Well, here's what the Belgic Confession has to say about the marks of the true church. Again, it's long, but it's really good. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. As far as those who can belong to the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or the left and they crucify the flesh in its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood and suffering and death and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. Some summarize the marks of the true church as really just one mark, the word of God, which is demonstrated in preaching and instruction and sacrament and life a group of believers who gather around the word of God is effectively the church. And in our gathering, we aren't bound by simply what we do with each other, we are bound by who we are to each other. Paul begged this of the church in his letter to the Ephesians. I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. We know that there is division in the church. Some of us feel the weight of it more every day. How we treat each other, even and especially amid division, matters greatly. Guthrie says, all talk about the church's invisible unity and Catholicity is only pious nonsense unless there are very visible signs of that grace, at least here and there, now and then, once in a while. How will we know that we are the church? And more importantly, how will others know that we are the church? How will we be visible? Well, here's what Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. They will know we are Christians by our love. Christ gathers us up to love him and love one another. And once we are gathered up, we are sent out. We are sent out not just by, but with Christ. This brings us to the fourth attribute of the church, apostolicity. It's kind of a mouthful. The church is apostolic, meaning in line with the apostles. So for us in the Protestant branch of the church, we interpret that to mean that the apostles as described in the Bible serve as our authority for what we believe and how the church functions. But apostolicity is not just about what we believe together. It's about who we are in the world. The Greek word for apostle, apostolos, means one sent forth with orders. So here are our orders. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These orders are not just for some of us, they're for all of us. Paul says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It's from this verse that we derive belief in the priesthood of all believers, that every Christian in every occupation, in every location is called and sent out to be a servant of God in the world." we are first filled with the Holy Spirit and receive the same authority by which Jesus operated on earth. Therefore, sent not away from Christ, but with him and even to him, we follow Christ into the world because Christ is already there. Apostolic means it is not us against the world, but it is us for the world because Christ is for the world, not viewing the world with suspicion or contempt, but with abiding love. I'm gonna say that again. It is not us against the world. And friends, we are not Christ to the world. We are sinners, just like everybody else, needing forgiveness, and Christ is the perfect savior. So we are the church to the world. Christ is Christ to the world. We bear witness to him when we go out. Not as conquerors, but as agents of reconciliation. We seek justice and mercy with humility. We are living examples, not perfect, but following the perfect one in inviting others to follow him along with us. We can go thankfully, confidently, and joyfully, because we go out not to take him, but to meet him. And we will meet him. We will, that is his promise to us, to be with us always, even to the very end of the age. When the church, the bride of Christ, will be finally and fully gathered from the ends of the earth and into his kingdom, Into the home that He is preparing for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for offering your eternal yes to us in Jesus and always moving toward us, even when we move away from you. You have called us your body and your bride empower us to live in such a way that our words and actions and our thoughts reflect the reality that we belong to you and have been made holy as you are holy. Teach us to love one another amidst our differences and let us live lives worthy of the call you've placed on us to go forth with you for the sake of the world. In Christ's name, amen.